Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains serious discussions on physical and mental abuse in relationships, abortion, and sex. Listener discretion is advised. Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season five, episode seven, and we are so excited for you to join us. And for those of you who are not new to the show, you might notice a few audio changes in this episode. And that is because Abby and I uh, used to live in the same city. We both used to live in Syracuse, New York, but now we live in different cities. Abby is still in Syracuse and I am now in Buffalo, New York. So this is us trying to figure out remote recording. It is not uh, the ideal sound that we want. So the sound that you're hearing for this episode is not forever. It will be changing. It will become better. So thank you guys so much for being patient with us as we try to figure all this out. Uh, Like I said, like before in previous episodes, this is just a a two-woman job. It's just Abby and I doing this podcast. So again, thank you guys so much for being patient. And like I said, this sound isn't forever. We are working on getting it fixed. So thank you. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1986 American-Canadian science fiction body horror film, The Fly. It was directed and co-written by David Cronenberg, and it stars Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and John Getz. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this recording and watch it first. Still here? Okay, great. Then let's get this morning started. In the June 1957 issue of Playboy magazine, French-British author George Langelin published his science fiction short story, The Fly. It was received very well, so much so that a film version starring Master of Horror Vincent Price was produced the following year. And if you would like to learn more about Vincent Price and why he's considered a master of horror, check out our Vincent Price episode linked in the show notes or just type it into your favorite podcast app and it should pop up. In the early 1980s, co-producer Kip Omen approached screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue with the idea of remaking the classic sci-fi horror film. Pogue, who at the time was known for writing teleplays for made-for-TV, like Sherlock Holmes movies, immediately signed on and began the script. He initially wrote an outline similar to that of Langolin's story and original film, but both he and co-producer Stuart Kornfeld thought that it would be better to rework the material and to focus on a more like gradual metamorphosis instead of an instantaneous monster. However, when executives read the script, they were so unimpressed that they immediately withdrew from the project. Oh, no. (laughs) A new producer stepped in, Mel Brooks. Yep, the Mel Brooks of Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, and the producer's fame. 
I mean, his son, Max Brooks, wrote the World War Z book. So I guess the love of horror is in the family. Nice. Stuart Kornfeld gave the script to Mel Brooks, who liked it, but felt that a different writer was needed. In the meantime, they tried to find the perfect director for the film. Their first choice was David Cronenberg, but he was working on an adaptation of Total Recall, so he was unable to accept. But after a few months, Kornfeld found that Cronenberg was no longer associated with Total Recall, so Cronenberg was able to sign on as a director, and he also asked if he could be allowed to rewrite the script. Despite the extensive rewrite of Pogue's script, Cronenberg insisted that Pogue share screenplay credit, since he felt that his version could not have come to pass without Pogue's script to serve as a foundation. Which is so, so sweet of him. I know, for real. With a script that everyone approved of, Cronenberg assembled his usual crew and began the process of casting the picture ultimately deciding on Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis for the leads. Funnily enough, Goldblum and Davis were dating at the time. Chris Wallace, who had designed the creatures in Gremlins, was hired to handle the film's extensive special effects. He ended up winning an Oscar for the makeup at the 1987 Academy Awards, which is actually kind of funny because we just did American Werewolf in London, and that was the beginning of those awards was with American Werewolf in London. Upon its release in August of 1986, The Fly was a huge commercial success and was the top grossing film in the United States for two weeks, earning a total domestic gross of a little over $40 million on a budget that has been reported as anywhere between 9 to $15 million. Film critic Gene Siskel named The Fly as one of the best films of 1986, and in 2005, Time Magazine film critics Richard Corliss and Richard Schnickel included The Fly in their list of all-time 100 greatest movies. Time Magazine later named The Fly one of 25 best horror films ever in 2007. To this day, The Fly remains David Cronenberg's most financially successful film. Although his film A History of Violence earned a little more at the box office, it also cost more, so that's why The Fly is his most successful film. According to film critic Felix Vasquez Jr. in a 2013 review, quote, The Fly is a masterpiece of tragic science fiction and gothic horror. And according to film critic Carrie Rickey, quote, Wildly imaginative, gut-wrenchingly scarifying, and profoundly primal, not to mention funny, David Cronenberg's The Fly is a movie that whacks you in the solar plexus and leaves you gasping. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Seth Brundle is an eccentric scientist with a brand new invention up his sleeve, a teleporter. He's discovered a way to move objects from one spot to another with disintegration and reintegration of particles. Eager to share his creation with another person, he stumbles across Veronica Quaife at a science conference and convinces her to come back to his apartment to show her something that will change the world. He doesn't know that Veronica is actually a reporter, and in an attempt to get some good material, she bites and goes home with Seth. 
She's surprised to learn that his experiment is actually legitimate and tries to convince Seth to let her write a story about his telepods, but he is reluctant. While she was in his apartment, she turned on her tape recorder and against Seth's wishes, showed the tape to her editor and ex-boyfriend, Stathis Borens. Stathis doesn't believe anything will really come of Seth's invention at first, but Veronica convinces him otherwise, and after Stathis learns that Veronica has started a relationship with Seth, he becomes obsessed with the story and the status of Seth's invention. Meanwhile, Seth tries to figure out a way to teleport animate objects, and he starts with a baboon, but unfortunately, the baboon is literally shredded in the experimentation process. Yikes. <laughs> he tries again, and after some reconfiguring, successfully teleports a second baboon. Seth breaks the good news to Veronica, but before they can celebrate, Veronica has to go and deal with Stathis, who threatens to expose Seth's secret experiments by putting him on the front cover of the magazine that Veronica writes for. Veronica confronts Stathis, knowing that he's retaliating for her new relationship with the scientist. Fearing that Veronica has gone to see Stathis because she's still in love with him, Seth decides, as he sits alone in his apartment, to teleport himself. He's successful, but not without a hiccup. A fly had made its way into the telepod with Seth, and their DNA was fused together, unbeknownst to him, when he made the jump. As Seth realizes that his telepod works on humans, he begins to feel himself changing, and Veronica notices it too. His sex drive basically skyrockets, he has insurmountable energy, he starts to get these strange lesions on his face and grows really weird, coarse hair on his back, along with craving sugary foods all the time. Mood. Ugh, yes, a very big mood. Eventually, Seth tries to convince Veronica to go through the telepod so that their sex drives can be matched and they can become, in his words, the dynamic duo couple that Seth longs for. Fearing for her own well-being, Veronica refuses, so Seth leaves in a fit of rage to go find someone else to sleep with and possibly convinced to go through his telepod. He meets a woman and has a one-night stand with her, and as Seth tries to drag her to the telepod, they're intercepted by Veronica, who shows up to his apartment to tell Seth that she had a few of those strands tested, those strange coarse hairs, at a lab, and discovered that the DNA contained within was not human. Refusing to acknowledge the problem, Seth continues on a downward spiral eventually losing his physically human appearance and becoming a deformed version of a fly humanoid he calls Brundlefly. Soon after their difficult breakup, Veronica discovers she is pregnant with Seth's baby and, under the care and guidance of Stathis, tries to have an abortion. She's afraid that the baby would turn out to be something non-human and cannot go through with giving birth. Seth does everything in his power to stop this from happening because he needs Veronica and the unborn baby to send through the telepod in an attempt to merge his DNA with more people to make him more human. Seth kidnaps her from the hospital, now in a state of almost complete transformation to a human-sized fly. But in a final showdown between Stathis, Seth, and Veronica, Seth is killed after trying to unsuccessfully teleport Veronica, who puts an end to his misery by shooting him in the head. Thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Of course, that one was very involved. There's a lot to follow with this story. <laughs> yeah, let's start with the Bechdel test. Does it pass? 
Nope, it doesn't pass. The two women in this film have names, but they only talk about Seth or, like, past each other. Yeah. Yeah, like, they don't really, like, interact so much. I guess... I guess Ronnie says, like, be afraid, be very afraid to her, but she doesn't, they don't respond to each other. Like, Seth is sort of in the middle, and he's sort of talking to both of them at once rather than them talking to each other. Right, yeah. So Nancy's dream team test, was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl a person of color? No. (laughs) Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? No. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, we're on (laughs) it. We're off to a great start. Hey guys, it's Gracie from Good Morning Nancy. And since we're taking a little break from our coffee break, aka our mini episodes, we wanted to make sure that we recognized our amazing patrons our Ellen and Lori patrons. So we have Ashley and Chris, Keenan, Dorian, Felicia, Janelle, Jillian, Julie, Maggie, Shauna, Slops the Clown, Stacy, Travis, Valerie, Jarvis, James, and of course, Michael. You guys are so awesome. Thank you so much for supporting the show while we go through this, this really crazy transitional phase. We really appreciate all the help that you give us. Thank you so, so much. And let's get back to the show. So let's talk about the symbolism of flies in general. Mm -hmm. So according to Colin McGinn in the book, The Philosophy of David Cronenberg, he says, quote, with some animals, we smile with others. We shudder. So what the number one hated animal or insect is, is debatable. But the fly, McGinn goes on and says, quote, They are surprisingly difficult to get rid of. To make matters worse, they often bite, and some even suck blood. They are invasive of human space, taking up residence in our houses, eating our food, seemingly drawn by our orifices, especially the mouth. Ew! <laughs> That's so gross. I mean, there's a reason why those pictures of people with flies on their face is both heartbreaking, but also very disturbing. Mm-hmm. According to Anastasia W., quote, When the fly spirit animal makes its way into your life, this usually serves as a warning that there's danger lurking somewhere. It means to catch your attention when you are spending too much of your time with someone or on something that has a destructive influence unquote interesting yes so the meaning of the fly also speaks about hate spite malice or blame and the whole idea of it buzzing around your head and like you know all the buzzing that can be heard overhead annoyingly uh is sort of like something to just get your kind of get your blood boiling and you're just forced to swat at it or kill it. Also, like, flies are the final most developed stage of the insect, right? So having started as a maggot and then growing into something with wings, it goes through a pretty gnarly metamorphosis. Yeah, absolutely. And flies are also necessary in the decomposition of dead material, and they're so crucial in nature, yet their lifespan is so short because they serve one small purpose, and that is to get rid of waste. Mm -hmm. And this is 
really interesting because Seth's greatest achievement happens so fast. Like, it feels like this story happens in the literal blink of an eye. And it's short-lived like the actual lifespan of a fly. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's also talk about the whole concept of aging, because that's a big part of this film. Mm -hmm. In the book Beyond the Veil of the Flesh, David Cronenberg's The Fly by Matt Zoller Seats, he says, quote, The fly also works as a metaphor for what happens to couples and individuals when the body breaks down, decays, or merely ages. It's also a genuinely sexy film, at least at the start, before the body parts just start falling off, unquote. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> and, you know, while I think it's important to look at the literal aspect of aging, Going back to what you said about, like, the fly, like, not ver living very long, I think it could also mean, like, the painful, ugly transition out of the honeymoon phase as well. Oh, yeah. And, like, this could be, like, their relationship is aging. And it makes sense that Seth, quote, unquote, ages, so to speak, at the intense rate of a fly. And this is just something personal with me. But before I met my husband, Luke, all of my other relationships ended after the honeymoon phase was over. Like, <laughs> it's true. Like, when I hit, like, 11 months of dating with my current husband... <laughs> <laughs> that was the longest that I'd ever spent with anyone in a relationship. So I really like looking at this film as like this whole idea of a relationship aging. And it's really because uh, Seth is kind of a jerk. And we'll get more into that later. But I thought that was kind of interesting. That's sort of what it means to me. Yeah, I like that. But back to literal aging. So Matt Zolder Seats went on to say, quote, I would never show the fly to a child or even a young adult, not because of the sex and the gore, but because they would have no way of processing the feelings it evokes. You have to have lived a bit to truly appreciate this movie, and it only becomes more powerful as you grow older. Okay, so yeah, side note, I saw this film when I was really little. Probably not the whole thing, just bits and pieces. Um, yeah. I watched it with my parents because, as we've talked about before on the show, they, like, recorded it from HBO back in the 90s when we had cable. And I can tell you firsthand that this experience is so real because, obviously, as a kid, I didn't really understand what was happening and it scared the crap out of me. Mm. Like, specifically the scene where she gives birth to the maggot. <gasps> yes. I That is, like, what stuck in my head all those years. And then I revisited this film when I was in college, and I was like, oh, okay, this makes more sense now, but... <laughs> Like, oh, dang, this is not for kids. This is, like, one of the exceptions. I would not show this to my children. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good point, is that kids wouldn't know to be maybe... I I don't know. I feel like... I feel like as a kid, you could learn to become afraid of like giving birth and that stuff with like the maggot scene and whatnot or growing old, like the fear of grow growing old. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that as a child, you would see that connection. Maybe you did. If there's a listener out there who has was a child when they saw this and they like relate to the whole fear of giving birth because of this, you know? But it could be true. No, you're right. Let us know. But um, 
I, yeah, I kind of, I kind of am going both ways here because I feel like as a kid, I don't think I would have understood that this was a metaphor for aging. Um, and I think as an adult now, this film is definitely more effective for me personally. Yeah. David Cronenberg himself has stated that the film is about old age. So to quote Cronenberg in the Paris Review, when The Fly was released in 1986, there was much much conjuncture that the disease that Brundle had brought on himself was a metaphor for AIDS. Certainly, I understood this. AIDS was on everyone's mind as the vast scope of the disease was gradually being revealed. But for me, Brundle's disease was more fundamental. In an artificially accelerated manner, he was aging. Wow. And he even compared getting old to another man changing into a bug story. The Metamorphosis by Kafka. In the Paris Review essay by Cronenberg entitled The Beetle and the Fly, Cronenberg says, quote, I woke up one morning recently to discover that I was a 70-year-old man. Is this different from what happens to Gregor Samsa in The Metamorphosis? He wakes up to find that he's become a near-human-sized beetle, and not a particularly robust specimen at that. Our reactions, mine and Gregor's, are very similar. We are confused and bemused and think that it's a momentary delusion that will soon dissipate, leaving our lives to continue as they were. Wow, that's so interesting. So let's talk about illness. Um, Jave Carell disagrees with the artist and believes that The Fly is not a film about aging, but a film about illness. He says, quote, I suggest that monstrosity is a metaphor for illness. Seth's physical corruption as he becomes more and more monstrous is in fact a depiction of illness and elicits disgust in the viewer that is identical to the disgust elicited by physical corruption brought by illness. A specific disease prototype is used in the film, that of cancer. Seth's disease is a result of genetic mutation, and there are many references to cancer in the film. When Seth tells Ronnie that he is ill, he says, I think it's showing itself as a bizarre form of cancer, a general cellular cancer. And Carell goes on to say, I suggest that The Fly is one of the most complete cinematic portrayals of a cancerous process, from mutation to death in all its tragic horror. Mm. So Carell goes on to explain that if we look at the film this way as a tragedy, which in Aristotle's definition, uh, a tragedy is the downfall of a good man who has made an error. Uh, then I think we can sympathize with the main character. Uh, he goes on to say, The Fly is not a monster movie, but the depiction of an ill human being condemned to suffering and death and all his frailty and helplessness. I believe that Seth does not become a monster. He becomes a man with a diseased body that is perceived as a monster by the other characters in the film and by the viewer. Hmm. So what do we think about this? I think I can see where he's coming from with this whole idea of illness as a as a translation for his monstrosity. But um, I feel like this, he's seen only the surface level of it. We're going to go into how Seth's personality changes for the worse. 
But um, I think that's sort of what he's missing here. I, however, I do think that it is interesting that he, he continues the theory by using the example of terminally ill patients whose love interests have left them because they can't cope with their partner's illness. And that's what happens to Ronnie. Like Ronnie says to Seth that she can't take it. And he retorts, what is there to take? And Seth, like, just demonstrates that there's this unique view of illness between the healthy person and the ill person. But yeah, like, his outburst, to me, just leads us to a, a deeper theory that it's it's not just that he's sick. There's something else happening inside him that's that's rotten. Right. Well, I can't really say that I agree completely with Carell's theory, but... That's a, it, it's an interesting take on physical illness for sure, but I think this could go for, like, an undiagnosed mental illness as well. Right, exactly. So, like, those who suffer or refuse to see that they have a problem that affects those around them, much like Seth, who chooses to ignore the problems that arise at first, but as his world comes crashing down, he acts out in a way that someone trapped by their mental illness could. He could definitely be considered a narcissist, which is also a pretty telling sign of the toxic masculinity that overtakes his life in the form of him becoming a fly, basically. Right, exactly. So let's talk more about that, like this whole idea of toxic masculinity and unhealthy aggression. According to Leanne McLarty in her essay Beyond the Veil of the Flesh, she says, quote, Seth's monstrousness is, if anything, a function of his violent expression of aggression and his will to control. His monstrous transformation is associated with an increase in a traditional masculinity. Yeah, and I mean, he's speaking in the film to a heterosexual woman about what it feels like to be penetrated or basically create life or know what it takes to create life and it's like yeah duh I know what that's like <laughs> right I feel like sometimes we see male characters that figure out how to create or like reform life and they get a dangerous ego boost that puts people close to them in harm's way because they don't know how to handle those emotions that go with them. Mm -hmm. But if men learned from an early age or even asked women what it's like to be the creators of life and what that entailed, they'd be better equipped to handle those feelings. And toxic masculinity plays a huge role in Seth's aggression, probably because he was taught that those feelings aren't manly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so many people, so many straight men hear toxic masculinity and they're like, masculinity isn't toxic. And it's like, you're right. It isn't. It isn't. There's a difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity. Right. Because before Ronnie meets uh, Seth, he is still a man. He identifies as a man. He is very masculine, um, but he is comfortable in his gentleness, in his art, because he plays piano. Mm -hmm. He just is more in tune with who he really is. And then when he makes this jump and he's being, you know, uh, spliced together with the, a fly, which is a an insect, which is a literal dumb animal, <laughs> right. you know, he becomes a monster. He becomes more monstrous. And 
He starts this when he thinks that Ronnie is cheating on him, which really, she's really just trying to end this whole thing with, with uh, Stathis because she's so sick and tired of his BS and just wants to have a normal life with Seth. And he becomes jealous and there's no reason for him because he just feels like he needs to prove himself and he needs to be quote unquote brave and manly and like listen if you're a man and you want to go out and chop wood and play basketball and rub cedar on your nutsack then go right ahead <laughs> but i'm whatever just saying whatever your boat or your scroat <laughs> if that's what you want <laughs> whatever floats your scroat <laughs> But I'm saying, like, if you want to do that as a man, like, don't feel like being a man makes you toxic. That's not the point. Because there are women who can be masculine and, you know, that... Whatever that means now, like... Right, exactly. You're right. It's it's all theory, honestly. This whole thing about gender and sexuality is all theory. So this film is so perfect because what happens is there's there's a man in this who is completely like okay with who he is. He's smart, he's funny, he's creative, and then he gets this one little inkling of toxicity in his brain, and that changes him for the rest of the film. And I think that's the point is that like, you're not born with this, you learn it. And that's what happened to him. Like he learned that he thought that this is how I need to be in order for my girlfriend to think that I'm manly and that I'm, I just feel like I'm not good enough, not realizing that she does think that. And that's why she wants to be with him. Right. And I think that it's funny that it's pretty much fueled by his sexual desires. Like, he doesn't start acting like this until he realizes that he can basically have sex all day long and, like, go all day long. And he wants a woman that can match that. So by her saying no to him, he feels like he has a right to it. Like, he goes out and finds another partner because she tells him no. And I that's that's a huge part of toxic masculinity for me that has always um, really resonated with me just because I see it a lot among like the general populace of my age group. So it's it's definitely it's a problem you know to go on he gets like these new like thick hairs growing on him right that you mentioned in the plot summary and Mm -hmm. this is so on the nose when it comes to showing masculinity in a visual sense and Ronnie who feels like these are sort of off and I'm not saying like again that masculinity is a bad thing but these just show like this is like a vision of him changing basically Mm -hmm. and he's becoming something that he wasn't when she first met him and so she feels like she needs to cut them off and then he gets like super defensive about it he's like no not my hairs like he's convinced that the hairs are what makes him more manly not the fact that he's a scientist or that he you know plays the piano nothing like that but it's like it's these back hairs like i'm a man because of these right if you get rid of them you're taking this away from me it reminds me of when boys hit puberty and they get that little mustache on their upper lip and they like refuse to shave it off because for them that's like a huge identifier of them becoming a man it's not their accomplishments so far or like how they perform in school or how they treat other people 
it's those stupid little hairs on their upper lip. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he even does this like cliche arm wrestle with another man in a bar for the hand of a young lady. Ugh. And and like my favorite line through though in regards to this theme is when Ronnie pleads with Seth to get help for his condition and he punches a door frame and he says quote does this look like a sick man to you and it's like hell yeah it does you just punched a wall (laughs) I'm sorry I don't mean to laugh because it's like it's not a joke but also it reminds me of all those memes that are floating around of like It'll have a picture of a hole punched in a wall, and it'll say something about, like, white male aggression on it. <laughs> like, but it's so on the nose, though. It's, it's, it's very so, true. Yes, and it's saying that, like, men, women, like, whatever. Like, when people become upset, sometimes the first thing that you do is you just want to hit something. Right. But I shouldn't feel like I have to punch a wall in order to get out my frustration. And, like, his aggression in this film is hurting himself. Like I mentioned earlier, he's not only hurting Ronnie, he's hurting himself. And she is afraid of him because he poses a physical threat to her. Right. Well, I think that that gets, like, discounted so much when it comes to, like, women explaining what is intimidating to them. And sometimes men will retort with, like, well, it was just the wall. It's not like I punched her. It's not like I took my aggression out on her. And it's like, okay, but you haven't learned how to cope with it in a healthy way. So it is terrifying to be a woman in that situation. Right. To be nope. anybody in that situation because nobody wants it to come to a physical altercation, you know? No, and it should it shouldn't ever have to be that way. Um, yeah. So another great line from this film is as follows: "Quote: I am an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake." Unquote. And for me, this is like Seth is warning Ronnie that he is now a danger to her. He is a creature with no compassion and no empathy, and eventually he. Like, eventually he still wants to be with Ronnie and wants her and their baby to, like, meld together and become one, right? But I mean, like, that to me just adds to the toxicness of it because he is sort of, to me, as like a metaphor for her and the baby conforming to his beliefs. Right. Ooh, that's, like, that makes me feel so icky. It's like one, like, patriarch of a family who just wants to be control- be in control of everything. Yes, Very cringy. So you mentioned the mustache earlier. Let's go back to this whole idea of puberty. Okay. (laughs) So some critics have claimed that this film is about male puberty. In the DVD audio commentary, Cronenberg comments on the sex scene between Seth and Ronnie and says, quote, this is my version of the sexual awakening of a nerd, unquote. So according to David Kerr, quote, in The Fly, Cronenberg is interested in the physical transformations of sexual feelings. In this film, Cronenberg pegs his story to the stages of male development. 
What follows is an awful parody of puberty, with Goldblum discovering mysterious hairs on his body and devouring junk food and feeling himself possessed by a strange new power and self-confidence. Pimples appear on his face, but they don't stop there. Soon his entire body is covered with dripping sores, and he's on his way to complete transformation. His long, dormant sexuality has been awakened, and there's no controlling the changes it works on his body. Ooh. Yeah, he really just to start out as like a nerdy kid to like a sexual, paranoid, godlike asshole. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, to me, if, if I went to a public high school and I had encountered this a few times in my time there, but it shows what a power trip can do. And it's so funny to me because it does remind me of some of the people I went to high school with. And I'm sure, like, we can all identify with this in some way or another, but it's, like, an example of people who peaked in high school and they were terrible and treated people horribly and, like, hooked up with people and then made them feel bad about themselves like Seth does to Veronica. And now they're, like, sad and lonely and unattractive because of their behavior towards others. And it's like they didn't really bloom after that experience. So it's like they were stunted almost, which kind of reminds me of Seth and this whole experience. So let's talk about Frankenstein and Brundle. So Matt Zoller Seats said about the film, quote, This film is my favorite take on Frankenstein ever. And I, when I read that, I thought, that's interesting. Why is that? And Seth tells Tawny, who is the woman at the bar, that he builds bodies. Because she asks what he does, and that's what he says. Mm-hmm. And then he says, I build bodies. I take them apart, and then I put them back together again. And the monster and the mad scientist are the same person in The Fly. And, like, we could argue that, at least metaphorically, the monster and Dr. Frankenstein are the same. But... In a literal sense, like, yeah, like, Seth is both mad scientist and monster. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, and Cronenberg felt that the final transformation, when Seth is completely gone and all that remains is a giant walking fly thing, and the, he felt like the creature still needed some kind of human element to it for the emotion to get from the audience. The articulation was still important, even though the character could no longer speak. And so Cronenberg chose to give the fly creature emotional eyes. And he said that they were, quote, big versions of Jeff's eyes, unquote. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's clear that no matter what theory we pin on the fly, Cronenberg wanted us to feel sympathy for him. Because as a man, monster, fly, jerk, all of the above, he is the definition of Aristotle's a tragedy. He is a good man who has made an error and is now suffering because of it. Yeah. Well, another interesting thing to the whole Frankenstein aspect is in Frankenstein, there's also the female that tries to talk sense into the doctor or like there's a feminine element to the, that the doctor needs in order to successfully create life. And this is really expressed here, and it goes as far as Veronica having Seth's baby, whom he wants to keep so badly as a piece of himself. 
He wants to create something so, so badly that he puts her at risk and takes their relationship for granted. His ego, ambition, and overall drive become his undoing. And his creation is a monster that becomes insatiable. He basically just, like, needs a body. Like, Frankenstein needed a cadaver for his monster. Right, yeah. It's almost like everything else in my life has completely, like, been messed up. Like, I can't, like, I'm a failure, basically. But maybe this child is my success story. Right, right. So let's move on and talk more about this baby and this whole idea of abortion and women's rights in this film. Let's backtrack a bit uh, back to Javi Carell's theory that this film is about illness. There is a 50% chance that Ronnie's child will be born a fly baby, which explains her MAGA dream in a sense. Like if Seth has a disease, then let's just say cancer, it's now in her child's DNA. And many couples decide not to have children based on their family's health history. And in fact, according to Ronald Allen Lopez Cruz, quote, the horror of uncertainty of the health or inhumanity of offspring is a real biological concern and has also been depicted in many films in the genre, including Rosemary's Baby and The Brood, which, of course, is another Cronenberg film. So the choice to have an abortion is made up of equal parts self-compassion, but safety. And like she cries out repeatedly, I don't want it in my body. And like as Sarah Cook observes, quote, Brundlefly needs Ronnie's body one way or another in order to access his humanity, either its insides or else the whole thing. To accomplish, you could say the ultimate nuclear family unit, which Abby mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. man, woman and baby more human together than he could ever be alone. And Seth even says to Ronnie, help me be human when he asks oh. her to keep the baby. It's so possessive. Yes, it's very scary. Creepy, yeah. So what's so great about this abortion theme, though, in this film is that it is completely and absolutely unflinching. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Nobody, like, there's no, like, dancing around it. There's nothing. It's abortion, plain and simple. And it is treated in this film as normal as a choice that Ronnie needs to make. Simple as that. It's also super refreshing that Stathis actually asks her, what do you want to do? Like, I feel like that almost never happens in films, especially films as old as this one. Like, it's not even his child. And even though he still feels sort of possessive of her, he never says, you have to get rid of it. Absolutely. And her whole story, like as a woman who falls in love with someone who changes, like physically, not only physically, but mentally, it becomes something like he just becomes something different than she thought. Like she didn't think that she was going to be getting into this, like when she started dating him and Mm -hmm. whether from disease or obsession, like when she finds herself pregnant, she has to decide how much of that man she wants in her life through the potential child. And that's like, whether you agree with abortion or not, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, like you should have that choice if you want to be connected to that person your entire life. So because I mean, you kind once you make that commitment, it's like, 
there forever, you know? And yeah, absolutely. She doesn't want to be used or relied on by him anymore. And that means saying no to his child. And I think that's a very powerful choice. And obviously she's upset by it, but she chooses to have control of her own future. And she's brave because even when she is kidnapped and fears for her life, she still stands firm in her answer. Like, she just right. will not be swayed or scared out of any decision. And that's so relevant nowadays because I think a lot of people are on this, like, mission to convince women that they don't want an abortion and that they should just have the child. And it's like... Until you're there in that person's shoes, you just, you you have no right to speak on it, so. Pro-choice doesn't necessarily mean that you yourself are pro-abortion. Like, pro-choice means that you can decide whatever you want, and, and another woman who is different from you can also make a choice, so. You're right. So let's get into this final thought, this whole idea of teleportation and personality changes. So according to Paul F. Snowden, quote, the notions of transportation or movement and identity are linked. So we can ask, why should, in the context of Seth Brundle's experiment, count the arriving object as the same thing as the departing object? Discuss. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's. Well... I mean, I think that we could look at this so many ways, but honestly, for me, it makes the most sense to think of it like you're never the same after you have an experience. Mm-hmm. Like everything, maybe not everything, but most of the things that you go through in life change you and you don't end up the same person on the other side of that experience like Seth going through his teleporter and basically doing a 180 when he like reintegrates. So whatever happens between that disintegration and reintegration, it's a very, basically it's just very personal. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I I can, I, I know what you're trying to say. Like, I guess a good example for me with how I feel about this, this philosophy of teleportation and personality change is when Seth brings home Tawny and they have sex and she's just like, we need to calm down now. Like I'm done. And he says, you need to go through the teleport because you will feel more sexy. And she looks at him. She goes, but I already feel sexy. Like she's already really comfortable with who she is and she really loves her sexuality and doesn't feel like anything needs to change. However, um, Seth does not agree with her. And this goes back to Seth wanting everyone around him to change so that it works for him. So he tries to get Tawny to teleport and he does the same with Ronnie. He tries to get Ronnie to do it. And she's like, I don't want to, I'm afraid. And he's just like, what is wrong with you? And I think that this whole idea of being like, if you teleport or if you do this thing that I do, then you will feel like how I do. Not realizing that, like you said, it's all a personal thing. Like what if one of Ronnie or Tawny went through and they came out 
and they didn't feel sexy like Seth does. And they felt, they felt really bad and they felt gross and, and, or they just didn't feel like themselves anymore, just in general. I think that this whole idea of if you do what I do, then it will work for you is a farce. And, and Seth thinks that this is what other people need in order to feel good about themselves, not realizing that maybe they don't. And like Tawny said, I already feel sexy. I don't need this. Well, that is super ironic also, because in science, you're taught to look at literally every single variable in an experiment. And if something is even slightly off, it can ruin your entire experiment. So Seth should know that as a scientist, but like he can't get past his own ego to make his own science work. Uh, <laughs> so yep. It's like, I don't know, like you are on cloud nine, so you are blind to anything that could be a hindrance or like any problems that might come up. And it's totally unrealistic to look at something in that way because like we have said, Everything is so personal and everyone is so different. Yeah. Well, thank you, Abby. That was awesome. Um, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy, guys. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and so much more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and check the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers over there and TV shows and new movies, so become a patron, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. We're also on Tumblr at Good Morning Nancy. You can also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.